Yeah. So welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Uh, quiet and crowd this morning. It's uh, October 10th, 2018, and um, it, is a, it is a big week. So hopefully we will see many of you tomorrow evening here for the all-chad meeting with uh, senior leadership discussing our strategic opportunities. Uh, thankfully, the Red Sox uh, cleared the calendar, so there'll be no, hopefully, conflicts uh, with, foot, with baseball games tomorrow night, which I have to admit is a, a bit of a surprise. Uh, you also saw the Chad Hero reminder for, for Sunday. Uh, uh, still a little bit of a last-minute reminder as we try to get a kick to the starting line rather than a kick to the finishing line. There is a wonderful match that the... Um, I believe it's the Byrne Foundation, thank you, uh, of course, Mrs. Byrne, that will match such that if we get 400 participants who raise $250 each, they will match and will end up giving us $100,000 additional. So um, we are a little short there. So either try and get yourselves over the 250 mark or find a friend who needs to get over the 250 mark individually. Or just donate $250. Well, I, so my worry is that you have to be, I have to double check and send it a clarifying email. I don't think donating, yeah, you've got to get each, there have to be 400 individuals who get over 250. You can't, so if, if you were to donate 2,000, not that you're going to, that doesn't count eight times. Um, so, so exciting week ahead and a great uh, Grand Rounds this morning. Dr. Ralston is going to introduce our speaker who's pr actually presenting their first uh, Grand Rounds of their career, but probably not their last. Sean. I'm really excited to be able to um, to introduce Alex. Um, Alex is, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, pediatric hospital medicine has recently been approved as a subspecialty by the, um, the boarding structure. And Alex is one of the first uh, cohorts of, of fellows. He um, uh, was a resident at Brown and did his fellowship at Montefiore and um, is currently faculty um, at Connecticut Children's. And so he's already published a couple of things, and he's uh, only a couple years out of fellowship. So I expect great things from Alex, and I'm really excited to have have a pediatric hospital medicine fellowship graduate. Yes. Okay, you have special dispensation today. Either your phone or you can open your laptops because Dr. Hogan has us an interactive polling session. So he's already put up there where to go at kahoot.it. That's also how you know he's quite a bit younger than the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. So uh, I'm Alex Hogan. I'm a pediatric hospitalist at Connecticut Children's, and my research interest is improving the quality of care we give to children with asthma. Um, so to start off, maybe we'll make sure our cahoots are working. Uh, so you can see that you type in cahoot, go to cahoot.it, you type in that code, you get a fun name. So I'll let you guys start adding your names as I start going through the, our talk. Um, so I have nothing to disclose. So the goals today are to provide an overview of some of the most recent literature published on asthma since the last uh, NHLBI guideline came out in 2007. Uh, I think some of these articles are, are potentially uh, practice changing and at least uh, can offer a lot of uh, interesting questions for debate about uh, the future care of asthma. So we'll go over briefly asthma diagnosis and assessment. We'll go over uh, papers in outpatient, outpatient, and ED, and then my home territory, inpatient medicine. Uh, so 
there's no great gold standard to diagnose asthma, but diagnosis is uh, based on symptoms and variable expiratory airflow limitation. Uh, in, as we know, though, pediat in pediatrics, uh, symptoms are often hard to assess. So while there are some validated tools, uh, children can limit their play, for example, and then not demonstrate the symptoms of exercise limitation, and their parents won't be aware that, uh, that the limitation exists. Uh, similarly, the variable airflow limitation is not always present, uh, hence variable, uh, and it's also difficult to do the, the, the test for these children sometimes. So doing an exercise test or doing the bronchial provocation tests are just technically difficult in pediatrics. Um, so like I said, there are uh, useful questions that can help delineate symptomatology in asthma, uh, and I think it's important to note that even irrespective of what uh, a patient's reported symptoms are, there are independent predictors of exacerbations. So albuterol overuse, especially daily albuterol use, uh, is a risk factor. Uh, not receiving inhaled corticosteroids, specifically whether that's not using a spacer or not being prescribed it when you deserve it, uh, is a risk factor. Tobacco and allergen exposures are obviously risk factors, and school problems are associated with it, though obviously it's likely secondary to the asthma symptoms, not school causing the asthma symptoms. Um, so let's just get a sense of our audience. We have some people uh, continuing to log in. 295-8829. And we'll come back a couple times to this during the thing. So the pin's still there. There's no right or wrong answers during this. This is really just so I understand who's in my audience and what our current practices are. So what is your primary role? Are you a trainee or resident? Uh, do you do primary care? Uh, are you an emergency physician? Or do you do inpatient or critical care? Yeah, so the code is down at the bottom, 295-8829. Uh, yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I've, uh, you can leave, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> this will only be useful for these four categories of people. <laughs> no ED. Yeah, I guess they're on the shift. Okay. Um, so just to give some, a basic framework for uh, for the discussion today. So uh, this is the, a typical asthma step-up plan. This is uh, from the NHLBI, uh, the quick reference guide. And so typically you have, for patients who have no persistent asthma symptoms, intermittent asthma, uh, it's currently recommended that you use uh, albuterol as needed only. And as, you, as your asthma symptoms worsen, as you need higher levels of care, you step up your care with starting with low-dose inhaled corticosteroids or low-dose ICS uh, is the primary medicine with the, lowest, uh, with the best bang for your buck. It has uh, very low side effects and has great effect at preventing more asthma morbidity. And then as you move up the chain, you add medicines, you increase doses, et cetera. Um, so this is an asthma action plan. This is New Hampshire's asthma action plan. Uh, I think many of you are probably familiar with it. Uh, and this is another part of the, the conversation is what to do with that information in that step-up guide. So uh, there's very little uh, debate in the literature about what to do in the green zone. So the green zone is medicines you take every day whether you're having symptoms or not. Um, so most typically, the best bang for your buck is low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. Uh, Montelukast is another common med. that You can increase to higher doses depending on your asthma severity. There's also very little debate about what to do in the red zone. 
Uh, the red zone is, I'm having a severe exacerbation. You should give as much albuterol as you can in order to get the child to a physician's office, emergency room, et cetera. Um, where there's debate in the literature is what to do in the yellow zone. The yellow zone is the first sign of symptoms. So you're having cough, tightness in your chest, shortness of breath, waking up at night. Uh, when you have these symptoms, there's little debate that you start albuterol. But the next question is, what do you do next? Um, so this is uh, future research, uh, future things that are coming up. So at NYU, they created a low literacy asthma action plan, which has been shown to, to be effective for parents to understand that what their child's care should be. Um, unfortunately, this is not feasible to do right now, to do copy-paste and create the pictures. And so I know that they're developing a web app for people to use. Um, and I bet this is something that we'll all change to eventually, uh, especially moving away from more text-based asthma action plans. So the question about what to do in the yellow zone was, uh, was addressed by this group. Uh, quintupling, and in this paper, quintupling inhaled corticosteroids uh, to prevent childhood asthma exacerbations. All right, so we'll go to our next question. All right, so you have a seven-year-old who's on low-dose inhaled corticosteroids, so low-dose Flovin. Uh, what should her sick day plan be? Should we continue low-dose ICS during the yellow zone? Do you double it? Do you triple it? Or do you quadruple it? Did you show us the study? <laughs> that, no, the study addresses the question. You don't know the answer yet. All right, let's see what we did. All right, so m most people double. Uh, some stay the same, some quadruple. Um, so the problem, like we said, there's little debate about what to do in the green zone, the everyday therapy. Um, the evidence around what to do in the yellow zone is generally pretty, has been pretty limited. Uh, international guidelines recommend increasing the dose, but don't say specifically how much. Um, and there was a recent Cochrane review that found that doubling was likely ineffective for both adults and children. However, they found uh, some evidence that quadrupling might be effective in adults, but there was no good data about what to do in pediatrics. So that's where this study came in. Uh, so they took 5 to 11-year-olds with asthma who had had exacerbations in the last year and who, uh, in general, were on, who needed step 2 or step 3 therapy in, per the NHLDI guidelines. Uh, they randomized them, had a double-blind control trial, and basically they had a green inhaler that was low-dose flow vent that was taken twice a day, every day, and they assured compliance with that with a, with a run-in period. Then, when at the first sign of symptoms, they would start a second inhaler. And so for half the group, you would be on low-dose flow vent, and for the other half, you'd be on 220, so high-dose ICS. So essentially quintupling the dose during your sick day. The primary outcome was the, essentially the number of asthma exacerbations that needed systemic steroids. These were pre-published, pre-defined uh, indications for starting systemic corticosteroids, uh, and they were started by the uh, study physicians. There were a number of secondary outcomes, uh, time to the first exacerbation, time to treatment failure, so having so many exacerbations that you need uh, to be taken out of the study, uh, symptom scores during the yellow zone, albuterol during the yellow zone, ED visits, uh, hospitalizations, and uh, linear growth. So the primary outcome found that there were this, no statistical difference between the two groups. Uh, the increase in the ICS did not change uh, their primary outcome. 
And similarly, it didn't change any of the secondary outcomes. There, there were similar amounts of ED visits, hospitalizations, and growth was not statistically different, though the, those in the high-dose group grew slightly less than the other group. However, that was a p-value of 0.06, so not significant. Similarly, this is a Kaplan-Meier curve, just again demonstrating there is no difference in the, the worst outcome of the time to total treatment failure. So in conclusion, what does this study tell me? Uh, it, it seems to me that 5 to 11-year-olds who are, who are uh, probably mild persistent asthmatics who are stable on low-dose inhaled corticosteroids, uh, increasing the ICS in the yellow zone is unlikely to be beneficial. A little controversial because at my institution, it's common practice to be doubling, tripling, quadrupling during those yellow zones. So this was kind of a, a very contentious uh, finding. So now moving on to outpatient and emergency. All right, let's have another question. So viral induced wheeze is the concept. So a three-year-old with a URI for three days uh, who is responsive to albuterol, what is the next thing you want to do? Do you want to just continue albuterol? Would you like to add, a, or would you like to add a steroid? And if you're choosing a steroid, are you going to choose dexamethasone, or prednisolone, or prednisone, whichever one you want? Yes. No right answers. There's no podium at the end. You don't know. Okay, so it seems like most people. Oh, maybe I guess I'm getting cut off that number. But uh, most are, are likely giving albuterol only, but it seems like we're re maybe relatively split. All right. So or oral prednisone for children with acute virus-induced wheeze. Um, so we know that steroids uh, are useless in bronchiolitis. There are a number of studies proving that. Uh, and we know steroids are very useful in asthma. But what happens in that in-between age cohort? Uh, what is reactive airway disease? Um, so they enrolled children 10 months to 5 years, which we'll put an asterisk on and come back to, uh, who presented with a URI symptoms uh, and wheeze. These were generally well children. They had no chronic conditions. They were not presenting as critically ill. And this was a double-blind, randomized controlled trial. I found the way they randomized pretty fun. Uh, they, everyone had a capsules that were broken open to a black currant-flavored drink, which I had never heard of. So I did a deep dive into Wikipedia and found Rubina. <laughs> And this is a, a, sounds like it's their ginger ale of England. Uh, it's just super popular when your child is ill. Um, however, it's less popular now because uh, in 2018, they changed to artificial sweeteners to avoid a sugar tax. And quote, fans of the drink were not impressed with the change. <laughs> also, really good citation needed on that one. Um, anyway, so the population. Uh, so like you said, it was uh, tw 26 months old was the uh, average age in both cohorts. So these are two-year-olds, the majority of them, uh, and about half or less, half or more, right? Uh, but besides that, this is a, a cohort of people that we see. This is common types of patients, so they had wheeze for the majority. A quarter of them had family history of asthma. Uh, the majority had had wheezing in the past year, though also the majority hadn't received uh, oral steroids. So when they randomized the kids, they looked for uh, time, their time to outcome was uh, time to discharge from the ER. And they found there was no significant difference whether you gave or a pred or a placebo. Uh, their secondary outcomes were similarly uh, not significant. So there's no difference in who was treated in OBS versus inpatient. 
There was no difference in number of albuterol actuations given in their severity scores on a standardized uh, scoring system they used. Uh, their seven-day symptom score, so everyone was called after discharge and found how long it took to return to normal activity. Uh, and their 30-day readmission rates were similarly not uh, significant. So what does this paper tell us? Um, Preschool-aged children with virus-induced weeds did not benefit from five days of steroids in any of these outcomes. However, a lot of the patients were young. You know, in, in, they decided to limit the number of bronchiolytics in the study by cutting off children less than 10 months. But I think there are a lot of people who would say, you know, there's an 11-month-old who could have bronchiolitis. There's an 18-month-old who could have bronchiolitis. So did including those youngest patients, those kids under two, did that bias them towards the null? And that's possible. Um, there have been a number of reviews of similar papers that have come out since then. This is probably the best done study, though the population is questionable. It, but it was a very large, well-done, randomized trial. Um, a lot of these other studies that have been done since then have similar problems of having very young children in them, and so they all might be having the same bias towards the null, but they have not found, uh, when you take all the data together, that there's any uh, utility to uh, using steroids in that population. There's actually a good uh, review article or systematic review article that came out just this month uh, that summarizes the studies that where you start steroids at home, where you start steroids in inpatient, where you start steroids in the ED, uh, none of them have found difference, but like I said, there's caveats to all that with the age included. All right. I believe this is our final question. So a seven-year-old who isn't asthmatic, has mild persistent asthma, presents with a mild asthma exacerbation. What steroid do you want to give? So do you want to give Oropred times five days, dexamethasone PO times one, PO dexamethasone times two, or IM dexamethasone? Got some more answers coming in. Exciting. Two, one. All right, let's see this range. Yeah, kind of all over. So we have most a lot of pred. We've got no one's giving IM, and uh, kind of split between two doses versus one dose. All right. I believe that's our last question, so you don't have to have your devices out anymore. So DEX versus PRED. Uh, five days of Oropred is obviously uh, common practice, very standard, what uh, I was trained on, what most people are trained on. Um, but uh, dexamethasone is proposed as a potentially equivalent or better therapy because it has a longer half-life. If you have fewer dosing and you just need to give one dose, potentially you have increased compliance versus five days of treatment, and you might have less vomiting. So there have been two recent meta-analysis and systematic reviews uh, that try to address this question. So there's some very, so the problems with the studies that are being combined is that they're all different versions of dexamethasone that are being given. Uh, so IM was the most commonly done study uh, times one, and then uh, oral dose versus multiple oral doses are were made up the other studies. So these were all combined into one and. Uh, the meta-analysis was unable to break apart and do sub-analyses of just uh, IM versus oral therapy. So that question still needs to be addressed better. Uh, so this is a forest plot. Uh, so to orient you, the individual studies uh, have, are done with squares, and then the summary statistics, the summarizing all the data above you, is in a diamond, with the center of that diamond being the, the estimate of the, of the treatment effect. And then the tips of the diamond show the confidence interval. So if the tips of those diamonds include one, 
there's no significant difference between the two study arms. Um, so in this case, we found there's no difference uh, between dexamethasone and PRED at relapse rate, which they said is an unscheduled ER hospitalization or clinic visit. So there was no difference in that relapse uh, outcome from at five days, at 10 to 14 days, or when you summarize all the data together, when you compare dexamethasone versus oral steroid, versus oropred. There were, uh, there's a decreased risk of vomiting in the ER though. So there was a slight advantage to dexamethasone there. Um, and so in conclusion, what do we draw from this? So dex is likely equivalent to prednisone in mild to maybe moderate exacerbations. Uh, with a slight decreased risk of vomiting. Um, there are problems though, so these studies also gave the med different ways. So some places chose to do the IV formulation of dexamethasone and gave it orally because it tasted better than the crushed up tablets for some of the children. Um, but obviously that's not a practical thing to do if you're in the outpatient world. Um, so the dosing is unclear and the frequency of one dose versus two doses is unclear. And then as an inpatient hospitalist, what is the appropriate steps that I should do? You know, if my hospital has switched to all dexamethasone in the ER as first-line therapy because they're discharging kids with one dose or maybe a second dose, what if the child is sick enough to be admitted inpatient? Uh, the studies that are out there uh, are just not quite good enough yet to prove that we can do a second dose of dex, though I know that's becoming a very common practice um, on discharge. So now going on to inpatient. So childhood asthma hospitalization and medication fills and the effect of on subsequent readmissions. So we know what meds to give in general on discharge. So albuterol is useful. Oral corticosteroids are useful. Inhaled corticosteroids are likely useful, especially to prevent the later readmissions. Um, but what happens if the patient never fills the prescription? So this study took uh, 12 different states spread out over the country uh, since 2005 to 2007. And they wanted to see how frequently were these meds filled within the three days around discharge. So essentially one day before discharge and the two days after discharge. Um, and was there any association with that with readmission? So they found it was pretty low. Um, and these are consistent with other studies that have, this was uh, Medicaid data, but they also have done this with private insurance. So 55% of patients had an albuterol script filled within the three day window. 57% had an oral steroid filled and 37% had inhaled corticosteroid filled. Now, albuterol inhaled corticosteroids, some of those patients might already have those meds at home. So when they checked if they had had a prescription the 30 days prior to admission, it increased to 67% of the cohort having albuterol at home or having an inhaled corticosteroid about 45%. Um, that still means 30% of patients who are admitted with an acute asthma exacerbation probably don't have albuterol at home. Uh, which is potentially problematic. Uh, and that is associated with readmission. So if you, uh, those who filled the albuterol prescription within that three-day window had a significant reduction in their short-term readmission rate, their 14-day readmission rate. And if you had filled an inhaled corticosteroid, you, there was an effect to decrease that medium-term uh, readmission. So at, from 15 to the 90 days, there was a decreased rate of readmission. So asthma prescription rates are poor. Uh, that's not ideal. Uh, and there's measurable benefit to people who do actually fill the scripts. Uh, the medications in hand then, and making sure that patients actually fill it and have it in hand before they leave the hospital, seems like a very good idea. Um, all right, moving on to another paper. Uh, so we love, I love a pathway. It standardizes care. 
uh, you know, in, it makes I find it to be really useful for teaching, uh, and it's actually been shown to decrease uh, racial disparities uh, in the care uh, given to people. Um, but this paper wanted to ask uh, what happens on length of stay and a number of other key outcomes in a large data set. Um, so how determine if pediatric asthma clinical pathways actually do affect care and outcomes for the hospitalized child. So they used a data set called the FIS, or the Pediatric Health Information System. It's a cohort of uh, tertiary and quaternary care hospitals that contribute data to this large data set, and uh, you can become a member and, and get data out of it. So the primary outcome was length of stay, and they did a number of subgroup analyses on these data. So in all, there were 42 hospitals included in the study. 15 started new pathways during the study time period. 20 hospitals improved existing pathways, and then a number of others had stable or no pathways. So taking everyone as a whole, there was a significant decrease in length of stay of around 9%. Uh, it also found that there were decreased costs uh, and decreased odds of antibiotics given, and I guess more people got albuterol in pathways. <laughs> Um, and the implications, though, were significant. So there were 22,000 fewer hospital days. It saved nearly $18 million. Uh, and there were 4,000 children, uh, fewer children treated with antibiotics. Uh, however, there are no differences in the amount of systemic steroids given, which seems surprising. However, uh, a number of other studies have found that using the JACO compliance measure of having uh, systemic steroids as a requirement of, a, of being designated like a good hospital is nearly useless because everyone gets systemic corticosteroids if you get admitted to a hospital. Um, the lack of improvement with chest x-ray use and uh, ipratropium is interesting, uh, and that's taking the whole cohort together. Uh, there might have been, they found that there's some improvement, that some hospitals did better with improvements in their pathway as opposed to just taking all comers starting new pathways. So that subgroup did a little bit better with those metrics. And then a 30-day readmission rate was not significantly different for the whole cohort. So in conclusion, it seems that asthma pathways are useful. They likely do decrease length of stay, cost, and unnecessary antibiotics, um, but they did not uh, improve some of those other outcomes. All right, so this is, what, this is the manuscript that really got me interested in doing asthma. So uh, I trained in inpatient pediatrics, I trained in pediatric residency, and then I came to the Bronx uh, to do hospital medicine fellowship which has the worst asthma rates in the country. Um, and we were found, I found that we were doing a great job of taking care of the acute illness. We did a great job of documenting the URI that caused this or the dog that caused the, the acute illness. But we weren't great at assessing uh, the patient's long-term asthma care, uh, and we weren't great at making sure a kid was on the right medicine. So, and that's... Uh, probably not an uncommon problem. So there was a recent uh, review paper that looked at all the potential metrics for asthma. What are the metrics we should be measuring ourselves against? Uh, and they found 11 metrics that, that were great. However, uh, two were eventually excluded in their final uh, analysis because they were not deemed to be feasible. And those were the proportion of patients receiving the proper controller medicine before admission and the proportion of patients discharged on the proper medicine. And the reason that you couldn't, that this was not feasible, was there was a lack of objective criteria and a lack of consistent documentation of the patient's asthma severity and control. And we found that that uh, was present at our institution as well. So it's the, the, vast, the major driver of all the failures we had 
were inadequate documentation patients. There were small numbers of patients who we identified as being out of control and then did nothing about it, or we identified that maybe they needed a low-dose ICS, and then we misdosed them and gave them high-dose ICS, so it went from essentially step one to step five, and that was likely incorrect. But the, the vast majority of the issue is inadequate documentation. So we created a specific aim to try and improve this. So we wanted 75% of patients who were five or older who had the diagnosis of an acute asthma exacerbation during the inpatient hospitalization to be discharged on the appropriate controller medicine as defined by the NHLBI guidelines within a year. We, this is a traditional quality improvement project. So we created a, a study team of key stakeholders, including nursing, RTs, pharmacy, residents, PAs, and attendings from the various services. And then we created a key driver diagram. So for those of you who don't uh, do QI or are not familiar with it, this is a, a tool to try and keep you on track and know how to change the things you think are going to change the primary outcome. So on the far left, you have the smart aim of the goal where we're trying to get to. In the center of the drivers, the things you think are the most important to change, and then the interventions that you did to try and affect those key drivers. So improving documentation was the most important uh, issue in our institution. So everything we did in some way related to this uh, so one example is that there was an, a free app that we found in the App Store that we encouraged residents to download. The drawbacks to this were that it didn't give dosing or medication recommendations. It just told you do low-dose ICS because this patient is step two. Um, it all, the other problem is it didn't have Android, which as an Android fanboy, I was disappointed about. <laughs> um, and next was creating a simplified uh, flowchart. So we looked at this earlier. This is the NHLBI's quick reference guide, and it is a mess. It is very difficult to read. It is 10 pages long, and that's the reduction of the 100-plus page long regular report. Uh, and the medication dosing is on a separate page, and I know people were not interpreting this data correctly. So we tried to simplify it and made it very colorful using Visio. Uh, so we have at the top the NHLBI's recommended asthma control questions along with uh, if a question about are the patients actually taking the med. That allows people to diagnose what asthma severity they are, and then it directly gives you the appropriate dose for age. And then if the patient was out of scope of this uh, flow chart, if they were needing higher levels of care, they recommended consult to, to pulmonary to talk about what other recommendations there are. And then finally, we had a conversion because we, we gave all the dosing in fluticasone dosing at the top, and then we, these were the most commonly used uh, steroids in our local area, and so it allowed quick conversion for everyone. Uh, another major problem was uh, changing the culture around uh, these outpatient meds, because there are some patients who wanted to just either defer to the outpatient, but we know there's problems with follow-up. Uh, we know that you have the opportunity in the inpatient setting to take the time to do a full exam, to ask the right questions, and we're working off the same playbook of the NHLBI guidelines. So we encourage, we gave people weekly feedback to say, yeah, you can do this, you should be doing this, this should be addressed. Uh, we also gave food-based incentives, uh, and that's our food-based incentive. So if a team got all the, everyone out on the right med and all the questions documented, I had to bake these double-stuffed Oreos with a chocolate chip cookie encasing them. Uh, <laughs> they were very motivating. 
And then uh, our final driver was using standardized language. Uh, when the project launched, we downloaded uh, documents and files onto all the computers to make sure that everyone had access to, uh, to the right resources. And then about halfway through the project, uh, we had a new EMR launch over the summer, which was, <laughs> which was like real ideal. Um, but then we were actually very fortunate in the end. It uh, actually did benefit us to create a smart phrase that made the answering the questions a lot easier. So they were present in the room if the residents had a workstation on wheels. Um, or when they went back to document their note, they had the questions right there, easily accessible. Um, so that's our flowchart. So then we actually had to study it. So these were kids 5 to 18 who were discharged from the wards uh, who had asthma. Uh, we pulled the first five charts each week to, to study, and it was essentially comparing 2015 to 2016. And so our primary outcome was the proportion of patients each week who were discharged on the right medicine. And our secondary outcome was uh, the proportion of patients who had all their questions documented and the number of the six, proportion of the six questions documented each week. We had balancing measures. So this was to make sure that we were not throwing our system completely out of whack. So we checked if the length of stay changed pre and post, if we were making kids be discharged later in the day because of our excess interventions, so discharges after 1 p.m. And then proportion of discharge on any inhaled corticosteroid. This one's a little different than maybe other uh, metrics that other people would have chosen. At our institution, we already had a very high percentage of people being discharged on inhaled corticosteroids. So we were already at 85% on discharge uh, in the pre-intervention. So our project was trying to get it more accurate, do the right med more often, uh, and also not make a mistake and accidentally decrease our inhaled corticosteroid use, which we know is pretty good already uh, by, say, making children choose to be on Montelukast more, which is not quite as an effective medication. So our demographics, uh, our children were around eight years old. Uh, there was no difference in uh, age and race in the pre and post. There were slightly more girls in the pre-intervention, slightly more Hispanic people in the, the post-intervention. However, uh, I doubt that these things change any of our outcomes. Uh, more importantly, uh, Severity on admission was the similar between the, the two groups. Uh, the percentage admitted on an inhaled corticosteroid was the same between both groups. Uh, those admitted directly to the ICU was the same. And then the discharging team uh, was not different between the two groups either. And this is our primary outcome. So for those, uh, again, not familiar with QI, this is a run chart. Uh, basically time going across the bottom from 2015 uh, through 2016. And then the proportion, in this case, it's the proportion of patients discharged on the right med. So in the pre-year, which is you know, from here, this section here, uh, it was around 60% of kids were leaving on the right med. But you can see there's really high variability. Some, a lot of weeks you have no one, you have some weeks with 100%. It really felt all over the place. Uh, once we had started our interventions, we started seeing more and more patients on the right med on discharge. And by the end of the study, we had 80% of patients leaving on the right med uh, each week. Now, this is a percentage of questions documented. And this uh, really shows uh, the change that really happened. Uh, so we were down in the, the low 40s of percentage of questions documented, again, with high variability. And then our interventions of, start, of having the app in the room, having the simplified flow sheet, having the resources on all the computers, and really just changing the culture around documenting this question, uh, that changed something. So immediately we had uptick in the percentage of questions documented uh, up to 
you know, the mid 80s. And then Epic rolled out and we had, and we encouraged people to start using those smart phrases. And we had yet another shift in our data to the point where we had 98% of patients being discharged with the questions documented, rather 98% of the questions being documented on the patients on discharge. Now this just shows that all the questions improved. We were already decent at, take, at asking if someone was taking their inhaled corticosteroid every day, but it, even that did significantly change. Uh, someone with any questions documented increased, as did people with uh, all the questions documented uh, increased. Our balancing measures were not different. Uh, our length of stay was similar between the pre and the post. Those discharged after 1 p.m. was similar, and we didn't totally mess up our system and decrease our risk of uh, our ICS rate. So in conclusion, uh, we were able to improve the documentation and improve the accuracy of these meds based on that documentation. And cookies were useful. <laughs> so to kind of summarize all the, the data uh, that we have seen here today, uh, increasing inhaled corticosteroids in the yellow zone doesn't seem likely to work. Cochrane Review has said doubling doesn't work. This study has, shows quintupling does not uh, benefit the patients. Um, and so it really brings into the question the practice of increasing in the yellow zone. Uh, systemic corticosteroids are like, unlikely to work in young children in the preschool age child. However, we, as we talked about, there's a lot of uh, caveats to the age groups included in those data. Dexamethasone is likely good as prednisone. However, we don't quite know what the right dosing is. Uh, asthma pathways seem to be pretty beneficial, especially improving existing pathways. Uh, medication fill rates are poor, like, and they probably should be better, and I think we can probably do better at that. And then uh, my project was increasing prescribing of controllers can be improved uh, through a quality improvement methodologies. And finally, I think everyone deserves a spacer. Um, so this is an asthmatic otter, uh, legitimately. They are in Seattle, there were wildfires, and this uh, otter did develop wheeze. And they worked with Seattle Children's and trained this otter to take ICS and to take albuterol via spacer. So if this otter can do it, I think most of our patients can do it. All right, thank you. someone had to publish this paper at some point, and luckily hospital <laughs> pediatrics did. Uh, also, that corresponds with when I needed to stop doing research and start writing and get out of there. No, it's, uh, sustainability is, a, is a, I think, a key question here. And had, you know, I could make it up both ways, right? I could say, if I was allowed to stay at Monty and have another job there and keep these data going, I would show that definitely there's another shift and we're up at 90%. However, you could also say you stopped intervening, what, in, you know, in the fall, maybe the winter, and I haven't proven sustainability. And that is one of the big problems with, uh, with quality improvement projects, especially a fellows project, which is necessarily time limited. Um, and so, you know, I set up processes for people to continue this. I've heard anecdotally that they're still doing well. Uh, they still call them the cookie questions, which I think is also problematic because 
you know, in a couple of years, those residents are still calling them cookie questions. They've never received that positive feedback. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you could see it going either way. Uh, but I think there legitimately was a change in the culture around uh, asthma at the hospital. No, I think yeah. Yes, I think that's real. So I have trouble with the kids that come in that don't have carry a diagnosis of reactive airways, but we do know that viruses are your biggest trigger for reactive airways if you have asthma, um, and that responding well to albuterol, right? So someone says the albuterol is making a big difference. So is this this kid's first asthma exacerbation, or is it not? I mean, we always do our own. Do right. we really believe they're responding well? Do they stop responding well? I think if it's very clear they have bronchiolitis, that everyone's happy to not do steroids or albuterol. But if it's not clear that it's bronchiolitis versus a virally induced asthma exacerbation, this is the kid that in the middle that we give them all steroids, we give them all albuterol. And... Yeah, I, it is a there. I fully agree. There's no great answer in that situation. Um, I know where I trained in residency, uh, this was probably the most, the Panacar paper the, was probably one of the most quoted papers because uh, our leadership was very anti-steroids and would stop them on admission on everyone. But I'm sure there's extremely high variability in, around the country in that type of practice. Um, and, you know, and then you, there becomes this battle of ER versus inpatient. If, if I'm in the ER and I know that that physician upstairs is going to stop my uh, oropred, then I'm going to give him a shot of dexamethasone and cover it. <laughs> and then I can feel comfortable that I've, I've done the right thing by my patient as an ear provider, and you know, that upstairs guy can't do anything about it. Um, and you know, that's a thing that actually happened in my residency a lot, uh, because they, they knew that battle was coming. Um, so what the right thing to do is in the clinical scenario versus what is shown there is, is still, you know, it's still up in the air, I think. I think the problem is that you have this, here's your population of ED patients, here's your population of hospital patients, and they overlap, here's your population of ICU patients. So their data may be correct. Those data may be correct that, st that steroid matters, it gets them out of the ED, it gets them home, they don't come back, they don't get hospitalized. But once they're hospitalized, steroids are not good. And once they're in the ICU, steroids are good again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, that's outcare. Outpatient is a better name. Well, I guess where, where we see them are after the hospitalization when they're coming back with their outpatient third, fourth, fifth exacerbation of wheezing due to viral illness, and sort of looking back and 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 and, and you know the things that seem to be in context. Family history, parental history of asthma is a marker. For, 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 for wheezing, for, for asthma, going back to the Tucson study from the 1980s, um, and, and evidence of, of allergy. That's not something you're going to necessarily see the, knowing the allergy in the, in the ED or the, uh, the, the, uh, the hospital. But we, only, we see, and we, and we see a, a skewed population. We see the more severe repeat offenders right. rather than the guys that... that that come through as, as one admission and, and done. Yeah, I agree. I, that's why I tried to be very careful in my language of trying to focus on the 80, like 80, 20 of the inpatient management, 80, 20 of the most patients, because I, you know, like, like in my flowchart, I separated the, the highest, most severe asthmatics because they are likely different than the majority of inpatient asthmatics. You know, the low, the mild persistent, moderate persistent, that's bread and butter for 
uh, inpatient or even the, or the ED, but the, there's likely something different about those patients who do need pulmonary follow-up, who do have the more severe asthmatics. Uh, and you know, that question of what to do with, the, let's say, the preschool age wheeze in, for someone who goes on to have severe asthma, like, that's hard to, to parse out like, during a study or, or during, even during the clinical first exacerbation. Um, thanks. That was a great presentation. I'm going to. I'm the outpatient doc. So Shalene is a, a critical care doc. So our patient populations hopefully almost never interact. Um, so I've got two questions. Um, one is uh, I totally agree with Shalene about these kids who wind up in her ICU. I started calling them the moderate to severe intermittent asthmatics because I've got these toddlers or preschool age kids who are fine, fine, fine. They get a viral-induced wheeze, and they wind up in the ICU or in the inpatient setting. And then they're fine, 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 fine until the next cold or flu season. And I'm wondering if there's any literature on, again, I'm calling them the moderate intermittent kids. Yeah, so there's, I, I think that's, that's generally pretty right. Um, I didn't present the data here, um, but you know, there's, as you saw, I focused a lot on, when I called someone asthmatic in general, I said greater than five. Because there's uh, the data on kids younger than five for the treatment that you would think would be best, daily inhaled corticosteroid, uh, doesn't seem to be as effective as it is in those older kids. Uh, and there's actually good evidence that just doing intermittent high-dose inhaled corticosteroids in those kids is as effective or maybe more effective than low-dose every single day, which is uh, a bit confusing, a bit paradoxical. And then other new pharmacotherapies that are coming out, uh, actually, that are not available in the U.S., but are available uh, in Europe, are combined ICS and albuterol together uh, because in order to do like a double treatment together at the same time, it's actually beneficial in those, might be beneficial in those children under five. Um, and so there might be some difference in that group, but uh, so maybe they do have a, a more severe intermittent and then they grow out of it. And my second question actually comes um, from Dr. White, who's one of my colleagues, an outpatient. Um, we've struggled in our outpatient setting um, to be able to do the teaching of inhaler and spacer in the office because of billing regulations. We are not allowed to give out the inhaler and spacer in clinic <coughs> to do the actual teaching. We can use a demo model, but then we can't send them home with it to, you know, so that it's in hand. As you suggested, having a prescription in hand as opposed to sending them to the pharmacy and they don't get there because of whatever reason is helpful. So I'm wondering in the hospital setting, are you able to actually give out the inhaler and spacer prior to discharge so that that continuity of care is actually maintained? Right, so it's, it's different on, depends on the hospital you're working at, I found. Uh, I think most hospitals end up giving away the spacer, that definitely happens. But there have been problems, depending on which hospital you're working in, to have uh, the, for example, the flow vent be relabeled for, as being outpatient and then sent home with them. So some hospitals do do that and some hospitals don't do that. Um, I know it's similar problems are in the ED where a lot of patients, you know, the nurse just says like quietly, let's just take this albuterol home and it's fine. Um, but that doesn't happen routinely everywhere and that in, from the ED, it's hard enough to get an ED provider to prescribe an inhaled critical steroid, let alone start one and give it and send the patient home with it. Uh, so, you know, what we, you know, there's com it's pretty common to have asthma teaching on the wards with uh, albuterol and a spacer. Um, at, the, at most institutions, that, that, that is relatively common. You know, one option would, of course, be 
tell the patients to come back at a three-month visit to teach, but that's like three months later in order to do it, and that's not appropriate, especially in a kid who's likely having an acute exacerbation in front of you. Um, so yeah, I think there are there have been outpatient studies where they use pharmacists to do that teaching. So at the site of where you pick up your med, they actually the pharmacist is trained to do the teaching, and those uh, some of those studies have been beneficial. Um, but yeah, no, that's a it's a tough issue from the from the outpatient world certainly. But, but if a resident wants to work on um, meds in hand, I mean, if you're, I mean, it's really pretty stupid, right, that we wouldn't address this. I mean, that we would allow sort of an administrative barrier to, mm-hmm. to, to impair the care. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there, you know, there, there's quite a bit of evidence that meds in hand, both on the inpatient side and even on the outpatient side, is um, the, the most effective intervention to prevent reutilization. We, we went up and battled the administrative rule about it, and we kind of won, but kind of didn't. Um, so I think similarly, it's like, just take the albuterol, um, relabeling it as needed. So we'll give them four puffs in the office and say, okay, it's going to be... And, and what the rule was that you're allowed to give, if I'm going to get this right without getting into trouble, you're allowed to give a three-day supply of medication from our outpatient office. Um, so like, if I saw a kid with strep throat, I'm allowed to give a two-day supply of amoxicillin to get them through until the weekend, until the pharmacy is open. Yeah, I mean... So, but as, again, it was an administrative rule that we no, had to work and, and around and almost, pharmacists. Most places will have those. I'm involved in a big, like, yeah. you know, 85-site uh, um, multi-hospital collaborative where one of the goals is to for meds in hand at discharge, yeah. hospital discharge. And people have the same thing, but ultimately, um, you know, there, there will be different barriers depending on where you're at and what your local thing is. The... You know the continued conversation with whoever's telling you that you can't do this, mm-hmm. you know, and the like, bringing in sort of pharmacy leadership, mm-hmm. and you know people will say you can't do this because you're not a pharmacist, you you can't dispense or whatever. Right. I mean, there's always a way around it. Like uh, you know now there are now a ton of different you know uh, published papers to suggest that it is the most effective intervention that you can do. So um, my, my argument is you know get a resident and just keep pounding away at whoever's telling you you can't do it. What's your next step in terms of continuing asthma or education quality? Because asthma has so long been sort of the classic target for quality improvement that people might have thought that there's not much left. But this proves there continues to be Rich territory and asthma when you well, the caveat is someone just did a meta-analysis showing that a lot of asthma <laughs> interventions are not very good uh, at changing long-term outcomes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll be the senior author. Uh, so the, you know, what what comes next? So one of the, I think one of the interests. So I'm planning to write a K award and continue to research asthma long-term. Uh, and my topic of interest is. Uh, you know, extending beyond the short-term readmission rate because I think there are a lot of issues with short-term readmissions in general, and a lot of these are not preventable. But using the marker of late readmission, so what happens at greater than 60 days, 90 days, 180 days? We have around 20-plus percent of patients will get readmitted. If you had an admission, 20% plus will get readmitted within a year or within six months. And that's, for the most common chronic disease in children, that's a huge burden uh, that really is ripe for uh, some sort of model to change that. 
Um, but how do you do that as an inpatient provider when you can't even change the local one? So meds in hand could be a potential target, uh, partnering with the school system, partnering with uh, a local community of, of pediatricians to try and improve the care we're giving outpatient is another potential target. Um, so that's kind of where I see going forward of doing a combination of, uh, you know, big research coupled with implementation projects nationally to try and, uh, you know, change this asthma burden. Um, it, we all know that pediatricians and social Yeah, that would be my vision. Uh, that's the kind of the goal that we're going towards. At the model that I had in the Bronx was a, a very close collaboration with the asthma center and uh, you know asthma leaders there, and they had actually hired educators to go and see every single asthmatic patient to do a standardized teach for every single patient on discharge, which uh, is a big lift and a big burden when you have so much asthma. It's like pretty relatively easy to justify. Um, so that's one model, but that would that only work in a place that has such a high burden? Maybe. So, it, you know, when you do, when I plan to eventually do some sort of implementation project of trying to address these determinants, you know, you can only change what you can change. I can't, you know, uh, in, I'm not, I can't give everyone really good insurance. You know, I can't give everyone, uh, you know, I can't change anyone's socioeconomic status, right? But, you know, smoking cessation, allergen reduction are potential targets, uh, but we'll have to see what is the most useful in that, wherever I'm intervening, you know, where their local practices and what can change in their local area. Well, I think an excellent first grand mouse taught us much. He gave us five minutes back. So. <laughs>